1 Samuel chapter 4, and we're going to cover Psalm 78. So you can put your place marker in Psalm 78 also. But here is what I've titled this morning's message is Break the Cycle. Now, you can sit in this idea in a very harsh and crass way in the sense of you may have sin in your life, you may have behaviors in your life, you may have attitudes in your life that absolutely need to be cut off, where you just need to knock it off in Jesus' name. At the same time, in this idea of cycles, we are, we are habitual in our behaviors. If you look at my calendar over the last week, and you compare it to the week prior, you compare it to the week before that, you compare it to this upcoming week, I get up at the same time every day. I go through the same routines on the day of the week. I have a very good and godly rut. But even in my rut, the, sometimes you can feel like you're on the hamster wheel in a behavior. And again, when I talk about breaking the cycle, when I talk about your behaviors, your attitudes, immediately the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, that one thing or those multiple things that you just don't like about yourself and you don't like about your life. And again, I want to give us the encouragement and the power and the pleasure in Jesus to stop doing what you know that you need to stop doing before God steps into your life and stops it for you. So the story that we're sitting in this morning is God stepping into Israel's context and breaking their cycle by force. Psalm 78 is connected to this in its, in its history and its topic matter, but Psalm 78 is going to repetitiously talk about the cycle of behavior that we find in humanity, that we find in culture, that we find in religion that has no place in our relationship with God. Now, we can very easily focus on the knock it off kind of stuff. But when you sit in the word of God, there is, it's never this call to just stop doing something. It's always a call to follow Jesus. When you sit in New Testament language, we have, you know, Jesus tells us if, if our right hand or if our right eye causes us to sin, cut it off, pluck it out. There's, there's something radical that needs to transpire. When you sit in Paul's letters, this encouragement of using the metaphor and the imagery of taking off clothes, there are things that need to be taken off so that we can put on the right things. So in this call to follow God, this call to know him, this call to understand him, this call to trust in him, this call that we sang in the very first song, let my Jesus change you, let him change your life. It's, it's always a pursuit towards him. So whatever you choose to focus on is what becomes the big thing in your life. If you were sitting there focusing on your sin and your issues and what you don't like, if that's all, what you're not doing or what you don't want to do, that's the thing that becomes the big thing in your life, in your mind, and it becomes overwhelming. So therefore... Let God be the big thing that you think about. This is the subject matter that we're going to be in this morning. So turn your Bibles to first, uh, first, yeah, first Samuel. I was going to say first Psalm. First Samuel, chapter 4. Before we jump into the text, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously. Just sitting in this narrative in regards to Samuel's life. 
or what we covered a couple of weeks ago, I'm asking for each one of us that you would make yourself known to us, Lord. Just as you revealed yourself and your word to Samuel, I'm asking for that experience for me, Lord, and for all of my brothers and sisters. I want to know you, and I want them to know you. I want to love you with my mind, my heart, my soul, my strength, all that you've created me to be in you, Lord. That's what I want to be. That's the man that I want to be. And I'm, I'm praying that same thing for each of us, Lord, that today we'd hear your spirit, but not just hear, Lord, that we'd be obedient to the direction that you give to each one of us. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as we turn to 1 Samuel 4 here, we are shifting... It's, it's not really a shift. The, the story, the narrative is moving forward. But I want you to keep the cultural context in place. So as we talk about breaking the cycle, Samuel is on the tail end of the judges. Samuel is the last judge in the nation of Israel. In the narrative of judges, we have this repetitious cycle. And the spiral is they're, they're slowly going down the drain of sin. They're getting further and further away from God in their national relationship with their, their deliverer, the God that delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. And these are all ideas that we're going to cover today. One of the things that we don't get in this direct narrative that we're going to get out of Psalm 78 as we sit in it the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, are still weighed down in their idolatry. And as we talk about this, this you have the opportunity to break idolatry, to break sin out of your life and turn to the Lord and trust in him and follow him as he helps you through that process and clean you. Or, Again, the nation of Israel, they have not been successful in any of that. So God is coming in with a very heavy hand to break this behavior out of them. So that's kind of the cultural context and the cultural background. Uh, the last verses of chapter 3, Samuel is growing in the Lord. There's been some time um, that's going on. God has made himself known to Samuel. Samuel has been established as a prophet in the Lord. The Lord has appeared to him there in Shiloh. Beginning of chapter 4 says, The word of Samuel came to all Israel. So again, this whole idea, Samuel is known as a prophet of God. He is known to, to love the Lord. He is known that the words that are coming out of his mouth as he is teaching, as he is prophesying that they are directly from the Lord. It's important because as we go through these next few chapters over the next few weeks, Samuel is absent because the culture is not turning to Samuel as a representative and a mediator of the Lord to them. They're just turning to their own ways and their own religion and trying to figure things out on their own. All right. It says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated. They were struck by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why? 
Why is the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us. Then when it comes to then when it comes to us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does, this, what does the, the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter. And there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. All right, so back up to the very first verse here, just dealing with the Philistines. So the Philistines um, were pretty popular. They're pretty popular in the book of Judges. They will continue to be a constant uh, opposition even as we travel forward in, in uh, Saul and David's stories in First and Second Samuel. So the Philistines are imports into the land just like the Jews are. So the Philistines, this is not their native land like it is for the Canaanites. The Philistines are from the island of Crete that's there in the Aegean Sea. So as they are coming into the land of Canaan, they are coming in at around the same time that God is exiting the Jews out of out of Egypt and as he is bringing them to the land. So roughly historically, the Philistines and the Jews are coming into this land at the same time. A great difference between them is that the Jews are in a Bronze Age era when it comes to their warfare implements. When the Philistines are coming into the land, they're coming in with Iron Age technology and they're controlling that technology in the land. This means that they are a powerhouse militarily. And what has happened is the Jews left Egypt. Egypt got crushed. This time in history, Egypt is it's still a powerhouse, but it is not exerting its influence into the area of Israel as it had historically. There are, others, there are other nations from the north, from along the Tigris and Euphrates that also exerted that authority to the south as we move forward in the Bible. The Assyrians become that powerhouse, the Babylonians become that next powerhouse, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then Rome shows up. 
That's kind of the history that's going on here. Why Israel is so important is it's the land route for all the trade between north and south. So all the grain from the grain bowl of Egypt, so to say, is being exported through the Mediterranean Sea and on land through the land through the nation of Israel. So there, there's money to be had here. When you sit with the cultures, even when you sit with the Philistines, these are city-states. So there's five major cities for the Philistines. They consolidate to get each one has its own king. They come together for for warfare and their same cultural background as they're trying to dominate this culture. So this is who the Philistines are. They are this proverbial enemy of the children of God as they are in the land, just as the Canaanites are. So now the Philistines are coming to war against Israel. So Israel is responding and setting themselves in battle array here in this valley, Ebenezer and Aphek, and they get whooped. And this is, this is one of those things, like we can read that 4,000 people died and just go on to the next verse, but all we have to do is sit in our culture with 9-11. In a singular day, you have over 3,000 of our citizens died through a violent attack. So now you sit with the, the pain and the response of what's going on in this scene. Ancient warfare, just like more modern warfare, it is brutal, it is disgusting, it is violent, it is horrific. You talk about PTSD today. I can't imagine what the people who process this kind of warfare, how it stamps their souls. So here you have the children of Israel going to war against an enemy in the land that God has promised to them, and they know all of these stories, and they get tragically and horrifically defeated, and they go back to their camp. And their question is, why? Have you ever asked God why? It's a dangerous question when you ask it outside of faith and when you ask it outside of truth. Because when you ask the question why, you can be filled with anger and rage and pain and lies and perceptions, and you act based upon those things. For the, for the nation of Israel, here they are, they are saying, why did God defeat us? And they know that whose they are, right? They know that their God is in control. But this is the weird thing, is that their God, the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth, has become, for most of this culture, nothing more than a religious figure. Nothing more than an idea, a cultural tradition, a cultural behavior. There's not a real relationship. And this is really picked up when they say, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant. If we bring the Ark of the, of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, it is going to save us. So all of a sudden, they, they're not looking to their creator to be who he has revealed himself to be. They're looking at a religious object to be their savior. And this, this is... I don't, want, I don't want to be offensive, but it's pathetic when our relationship with God turns to any kind of object, any kind of just rote ritual. It's empty. It serves absolutely no purpose whatsoever. This is, this is the meaning of the Ark of the Covenant. So when God is delivering them out of Egypt, 
you have God audibly speaking his Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. When when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai in meeting with the Lord, we are told that God fingers, he pins the words of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, that he says audibly in Exodus 20, that he pins these things down with his finger on two tablets of stone. And you have this whole scene um, in that interaction between Moses and God. God is giving to Moses the direction to create this tabernacle, this portable structure that is going to represent God's uh, presence dwelling in the midst of the people. The very first object that God gives for the instructions to be built for this tent, the tent's the last thing that he talks about being built. The first thing is the ark. And all the ark is is a rectangular box, roughly four feet long. It's two feet wide, two feet high. And in this box, it's just, it's acacia wood. It's covered in gold, so it's pretty, it's ornamental. And inside the box, this law, God's law, was to be placed. The emphasis becomes, here is God's law. I am your God. I am the God who has delivered you out of Egypt and out of your slavery. You shall have no other gods but me. That is the first commandment of the ten, and God goes on in that. Over the the lid of this box is called the mercy seat. And it's a lid is a covering. It gets into the imagery of blood sacrifice, the whole idea of atonement, that this lid, this seat of God's mercy is covering his law. And as we, as we continue to go on today, especially as we get into Psalm 78, the emphasis is not on human stupidity and human rebellion and human stubbornness. The emphasis is upon God's mercy. He has promised to dwell with the nation of Israel, that he would dwell between the cherubim. So these, there's these ornamental cherubim that are facing inward, directed at the presence of God. And God said, from above the mercy seat, I will speak to you. And the whole imagery for the nation is, here is the holy God who is dwelling in your midst. And this box was to be placed into the interior room of the tabernacle, which is the Holy of Holies, that the high priest could go, only go in one time per year, and that's with blood and with sacrifice. That's it. And the imagery, again, is giving to the nation the separation between a sinful, broken, dying man and a holy, eternal, perfect God and his relationship with his creation and what it is that he is doing in redeeming us, purchasing us out of our sin, ultimately in the New Testament through the blood of his son, Jesus on the cross. And what it means that he is going to dwell with his creation for all eternity. That's, that's the imagery of the ark. So they've lost the relationship and the connection with God and they are looking at their great defeat that it's because we're in disobedience with God in some fashion. But the conclusion that they come to when they ask the question why, they have all these falsehoods in their head. So they're sitting in, the, in the, their cultural stories of 
when the Jews come into the promised land and you have Joshua marching around Jericho seven times, where are they marching around Jericho with? The Ark of the Covenant. What's missing from our battle? The Ark of the Covenant. Again, false conclusions because their premises were off to begin with. So now they're looking not to God, but they are looking to an object. They're looking to themselves. They're looking to, again, anything outside of God to save them from the Philistines. And when you look at um, verse 4 there where it says, The ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim, that's considered like this full, most complete liturgical title for the ark. So multiple times it's just called the ark. Sometimes the ark of the covenant, ark of the covenant of God, Lord of hosts. Here's its full title. And again, that full title is, ought to have weight in regards to why God said for it to be constructed in the first place. So these individuals, they send a... You know, some people to go to Eli, they're in Shiloh. Hophni and Phinehas are there as the priests. And this is what's astounding. They don't go talk to Samuel. Samuel is established as the prophet of the land. The entire culture knows it. Hophni and Phinehas and all of their issues that they have and the judgment that is coming their way, they don't question what is being asked of them. They just... We're priests. Our job is to, you know, to maintain the ark, to carry the ark. Your guys' suggestion sounds great to us. Let's go. So Hophni and Phinehas join the team. The ark comes into the land, into, uh, you know, the, the camp of the Jews there. Seahawk fans, there's one back there at the table. I don't know about other sta stadiums, but I know that when the Seahawks meet for a football games, their fans cause the Richter scales to register because the shouting is physically trembling the land. That's this kind of excitement and this passion. 30,000 men are going to die. So you have over 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 men shouting, not for God, but for a box that has no power to save them. Philistines are afraid themselves, but they pull themselves up by their bootstraps and encourage each other to be strong and to be men. And again, this very great slaughter of not just 4,000, but another 30,000 foot soldiers from the nation of Israel die. The ark is captured, and Hophni and Phinehas die as a result of God's judgment that occurred at the end of chapter 2. Now 12, verse 12. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh. This is about 20 miles, so that's a lot of running. Came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching for his heart trembled. His heart was anxious, not for his sons, but for the ark of God. And when the man came to the city and told it, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see. 
Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle and fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a very great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then when it happened, when he made mention of the ark of God, that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel for 40 years. Doesn't really need much comment other than just Eli's, Eli's response to God is very wanting in the narrative that we have. We've brought it up before, but again, when Eli is interacting with the word of God, when he's interacting with the actions of God, um, his responses are, are pretty wanting as we're talking about, you know, him hearing the news of his sons dying. Samuel doesn't give us that reaction, but when it comes to the ark of God, again, not his, he's, not, he's not overcome by his lack of relationship with God. He's overcome by the fact that a box that he's responsible for has been captured. Again, attitude, mind, life, emphasis is in the wrong place on a thing, on a something that is man-made rather than upon what that is to image, which is the Almighty God. Verse 19, now his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was with child, due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Now, just follow the narrative. It's, it's easy to think that she didn't answer because she's dead. That's not what's being conveyed. So she's gone through a very hard uh, labor. This, uh, this woman, Finhas' wife, she is going to die as a result from the blood loss of this childbirth. But she is not dead yet. When the woman says, do not fear, you have borne a son, that is, that, is a, that is a tremendously joyous event in this culture. And the woman who is there with her in her labor, she's conveying to her that she had a son to bring up her spirits, to be proud that she has borne a child of the nation of Israel. She doesn't have a singular response to that. She's silent in regards to the proclamation that she's had a son because that's not what is important at the moment. She did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she, being Finhas's wife, named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Ichabod means no glory, no honor. 
This is going to be a repetitious theme in the future. So in this scene, you have the tabernacle is in Shiloh, representing God in the midst of the nation of Israel, correct? The ark, representing where God is going to dwell in his midst, has been captured by an enemy. So she is proclaiming that God's glory has departed from the nation of Israel. So, true. In the future, when after the temple is built and Israel continues down the path of idolatry, we have this whole scene in Ezekiel of the glory of God departing from the temple. After that temple is destroyed and the temple is rebuilt, after the Jews come back into Israel, after the, captive, the Babylonian captivity, we are never told that the glory of God inhabits that temple. So the temple that Jesus is at, we are never told that, again, that the glory of God is there abiding. We are never told that the Ark of the Covenant is ever in that building. And again, it's okay because it's all representation. It's all a symbol, an imagery, a shadow of what is true. All right, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 78. We're going to come back to that story because it's going to continue on for the next few chapters in Samuel. As we talk about breaking the cycle, as we talk about answering the question of why did God just do what he did? Why did God allow his children to be defeated in war? Why did God allow his ark to be captured in war? Psalm 78 helps answer this question for us and helps fill in some of the historical gaps that we don't get in Samuel that we're going to get here. And here's what's going to happen. Shiloh gets destroyed. The ark is going to be, is captured. It's going to be seven months in with the Philistines. When it gets brought back to the nation, it's going to be in the house of another individual for 20 years until another tabernacle is rebuilt and David goes and gets that ark and brings it to Jerusalem. And then his son Solomon is going to build the temple. So we don't get in Samuel the reality that God is not just... Um, his, his kids just didn't lose a singular battle. He is judging their entire relationship with him because their relationship with him is based on idolatry, and that's going to come out in Psalm 78. So hold on to your hats. This is the longest psalm in the Bible outside of Psalm 119, so we're going to be moving pretty quick. But the first eight verses really set up the, the, the idea that is going on. This is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was appointed as a worship leader by David. He and He-Man worship together. He-Man is a descendant of Samuel. The emphasis, again, on this, keep your mind focused on God. Keep your mind focused on his mercy. As you talk to God, as you're meditating on things that may need to be broken out of your life, things that may need to be added in your life, whether this is sin, whether this is something more super, I'm not even going to say that, something more trivial than that, um, just listen to the Lord and focus on his mercy in this. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. 
I will utter dark sayings of old, literally, I will utter riddles of old. That is quoted in regards to Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 13, where he is speaking through a bunch of parables. We are told that he is doing that in fulfillment of Asaph as a prophet. Verse 3, when, when we have heard and known, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us, we will not hide from our children, telling to the generations to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. Again, this is, you see in Deuteronomy 5 and 6, Deuteronomy chapter 5 is the retelling of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 6, it has the Shema in it, in it which is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. And whatever God has taught you, what are you going to do with it? You're going to teach them diligently to your children. So this is what Asaph is quoting. He commanded these things to our fathers that they may make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them. And this is the good and the bad. Don't hide anything. The children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children for the purpose that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, not just in some child's story, but this is who our almighty God is in history. This is who he is today. This is how he has worked out these same things in my life. This is what I, has what I have communicated to my kids. This is what my kids are going to communicate to theirs should the Lord tarry. They may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Do what you're told, church. And just so you know, I'm saying that to myself. God desires obedience in me and not angry, fussy, toddler, stubborn, rebellious obedience. He is my father, and he is teaching me, and he is instructing me, and the commands that he has given to me are for my benefit and for me to honor and glorify him in the life that he has given me. So when I say tongue-in-cheek, do what you're told, it has all of that heart and weight behind it. We have no excuse before our God. Verse 8. And may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So not only individually, but culturally. So as we talk about having cycles broken, not only personal cycles, not only cycles in religion, but boy, are there a lot of cycles in our culture that we need to be praying for them to be broken. Verse 12, marvelous things he did in the sight of our fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of zone. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. This is all in Exodus. He, uh, and he made the waters stand up like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Now, 
This is a song. Asaph is writing a song. There is a lot more content clearly to give all this description. I'm hoping that this is familiar for you. If it's not, I would encourage you with great delight to read the book of Exodus. Fabulous. Verse 17, but they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, huh, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Can God fill in the blank? Questioning God's power, questioning God's existence, questioning his plans, his purposes, his abilities. And because we are impatient and insolent, this is this idea of testing God. Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? Therefore the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also came up against Israel because they did not believe in God. And it's not just believing that he exists. Listen to who he's writing about. He is writing about people that witnessed all the plagues of Egypt. They have witnessed all the miracles. They have witnessed the audible voice of God speak the Ten Commandments. They see the people that he's talking about are looking day and night at the pillar representing the presence of God before them. So when he says that they did not believe in God, it's not that they don't believe in his existence. They don't believe that he is who he says he is. They don't believe that he is the only God. They don't believe that he is still greater than the gods of the Egyptians. They don't they don't believe that he has any concern or care for them and their fa family and their daily needs as they're in a wilderness where there's no crops. Can God feed my family? They don't believe in God. They did not trust in his salvation. This is how God chose to deliver them out of their slavery. Their behavior demonstrates that they did not trust in the salvation that God desired to provide for them. They wanted salvation through a different way, with different stuff, whatever that may look like and wish for. You recognize this heart? Is this the heart of the Jews only, or do you recognize your own heart in any of this? I used to think the Jews were a bunch of morons. I tell you this all the time, first time I read the Bible, and it didn't take too long for God to continue to reveal that a lot of this has been preserved in imagery, in this history, so that I would know and understand my own tendencies, my own personalities, my own stubbornness, my own rebellion against God. And my prayer is, God, the stubborn man that I am, make me stubborn for you, not against you. I trust in your salvation. There's a whole bunch of things about the cross of Jesus Christ that I don't understand, but boy, do I trust it. Yet he commanded the clouds above like even in the midst of their rebellion god is still what he's commanding the clouds above giving them shade he opens the doors of heaven and rained down manna on them to eat and given them a bread and given them of the bread of heaven men ate angels food he sent them food to the full jesus is the bread 
from heaven. Verse 26, he caused an east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he brought in the south wind. He also rained meats on them like the dust, feathered fowl like the sand of the seas, and he let them fall in the midst of the camp all around their dwellings, so that they ate and were filled. He gave them their own desire. They were not deprived of their craving. You should underline that, and you should... It's a sad day when God gives you the desire of your heart that is not in line with his desire. Again, there's a, there's a whole context behind this. He gave them their own desire, not their desire that's been conformed to him, but their own they were not deprived of their cravings. But while the food was still in their mouth and coming out of their nostrils, they were so full. The wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. Again, that's a, that's a, it's a major judgment. You need these stout and strong men for protection and war, and that's who God struck down. Verse 32, in spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wonderful works. Therefore, their days he consumed with futility and their years with fear. This is, this is why the idea of you break your cycle is so important. I've lived in the misery and the futility of extended years of just doing my own thing, and it is so empty. It's futile. It's, I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have fear at that time, but it's just life had no meaning and no purpose. And it's, it, you're on the cycle, you're on the hamster wheel, you're just going through the motions, and you're asking this question, what is the meaning of all of this? I don't get it. Without faith in the Lord, without believing not just in him, but in his words, trusting in him, your days are truly just consumed with fertility. Get off the wheel, break the cycle, and live in his full and abundant life that he has promised us. Verse 34, he slew them, then they sought him. And this, is, this gets back to the idea. This is why God allowed the harsh judgment there in Samuel. He is seeking to break them of their cycle, for them to seek him, not to seek his box, not to seek religion, not to seek anything else, an idol, but to seek him and him alone. And, him alone. and they returned and sought earnestly for God, verse 35. Then they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God their redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongue. We say often worship songs can make liars out of us as we're singing these songs with either in vain and emptiness or the lyrics that we're singing. We don't really believe it or we're not really, really doing it. Specifically the one that says, I surrender all. Verse 37. For their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he, 
being full of compassion, forgave, covered, atoned their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned away his anger and did not stir up all his wrath, for he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. Again, what is being exalted by Asaph as a prophet of God? God's mercy. He's always been this way. He'll always be this way. And not just to others, but to you. What do you need to cut out of your life? What do you need to add to your life? Your God is merciful to you. He'll help you cut it off. In fact, you give it to him and he'll cut it off for you. Because it's only through the power of God that any kind of true transformation in mind and heart and behavior and words comes about. Asaph is going to repeat himself because we need to learn by repetition. Verse 40, how often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God. Note this one, underline this too in verse 41. They limited the Holy One of Israel. Through their unbelief, they are the ones that are limiting the power of God in their life. Yes, God is. Yes, God loves you. Yes, God is gracious and merciful and compassionate. Yes, he is there to forgive you and restore you. But if you want to choose to keep doing what he's telling you not to do or not do what he is telling you to do, realize and know and understand that God is not the one who is limiting himself. You are the one that is limiting God from being who he is in all of his fullness and all of his truth. Do you want to know that joy is found in God and God alone? There's a road to that. Do you want to know that you are strong in him in all of your weaknesses? There is a road to that, but it just doesn't come about. He is inviting you into the relationship. Do not limit the Holy One of Israel. And I'm going to keep telling you, I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking to myself. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the enemy, when he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the fields of Zom. All the plagues turned their rivers into blood and their streams they could not drink. He sent swarms of flies among them, which devoured them, and frogs which destroyed them. He also gave their crops to the caterpillar and their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He also gave up their cattle to the hail and their flocks to, uh, to fiery lightning. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. Remember that the, his kids are witnessing all of this judgment upon the nation of Israel, all of God's acts and wonders. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death. He gave their life over to the plague and destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt, the first of their strength and the tents of Ham. But he made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them on safely so that they did not fear. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies and he brought them to his holy border. This mountain, which his right hand has acqu had acquired, 
He also drove out the nations before them, allotted them an inheritance by survey, and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their carved images, so their idolatry. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel. Here's our context from 1 Samuel, verse 60. So that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hands, referring to the ark. He also gave his people over to the sword, not to the ark, right? Not to it, but to what the ark represents. He also gave his people over to the sword and was furious with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men and their maidens were not given to marriage. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. The Lord awoke as from sleep, like a mighty man who shouts because of wine and he beat back his enemies he put them in a perpetual reproach. And we're going to see that's all in reference to the Philistines, and we'll get that context over the next couple of weeks when we get back to Samuel. Verse 67. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. So again, um, Shiloh is in uh, the tribal allotment of Ephraim. It gets into a lot of Genesis and stuff that we won't get into in regards to Joseph and Ephraim. But anyways, verse 68, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved, which is where the temple was built. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which he has established forever. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following ewes that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people in Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. So this is what Asaph is doing. This is, this is a wisdom psalm. It's a historical psalm. Asaph is seeking to not hide from his people's history. And as he is recounting the history of his people, he is also, you know, he's, he's conveying his own history, his own context, the nation of Israel during his time, just like we can sit in all of this imagery. But when we sit in the word of God, the good is there along with the bad. The bad is there to help us understand the consequences of turning away from God. When you sit with Asaph in this, Asaph is attempting to bring about a response in our hearts and our lives. He is sitting there showing repetitiously, here is who God is as creator of the heavens and the earth. Here's who he is as the God who chose our father Abraham, the Hebrew. Here's who he is when he is the one who sent us to the nation of Egypt in a time of famine 
where we found ourselves to be underneath the harsh subjection and slavery of Egypt, which is a representation of sin ruling and reigning over us in our lives. Here is who our God is in delivering by his hand, not by military effort, not by, you know, yes, Moses was there as a mouthpiece and there to lead the people in the name of God, but God did all of this by his arm, by his hand, by his power. But what do people do? We stay in our dark hearts and our limited perspectives, our limited ways, and we sit there and we sit in this testimony and, and all of its variety and all of the acts that God has done. And in our personal relationship with God, how dare I question God? God, do you really love me? God, can you really provide for me? God, do you really have the power to take this sin out of my life? God, do you really forgive me? God, is heaven really forever? Is hell really forever? Is Jesus the only way? We sit in all of the revealed truth. Like, these, these are not my words. We go and we sit in his word and we look at what he has said. Why do we all question him? Why are we stubborn? Why are we rebellious? It's our nature. And he knows it. Asaph says that God knows that we are just flesh and our life is a vapor. And in that, we don't wallow in the woe is me and the woe is humanity. It's always, Asaph's giving us that exhortation, that encouragement to get your eyes back upon the Lord. Look at his mercy. Look at his compassion, his love, his power. Set your hope on the Holy One of Israel. Set your hope on Jesus who died for your sins on a cross 2,000 years ago. And you know that that is true based upon his resurrection. If Jesus rose again from the dead, why would I turn to anything else other than him for anything? New Testament, Jesus is my all in all. So why would I turn to even communion? We're going to turn to communion. Worship team, come on up. We're going to have communion in a minute. There's nothing... It's not to be a religious act. It's not to be, here's this holy piece of bread and here's this holy grape juice and this has now become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That's not what it is. That's what the Jews did to the Ark of the Covenant. It was not God. It was to represent God in their midst. The elements for communion are not the Almighty God, but they are to re represent to you who he is. Our God became like us. He gave us his body, the bread from heaven, to be a nourishment to us. The metaphor of eating and consuming God and his word is throughout the Bible. Come to me, taste and see that I am good. Come to me, eat of my body. It's not, to, it's not gross. It's, it's an image to give. Come and become one with me. The bread is, it's broken to re represent his broken body. It's without leaven to represent that he was without sin. 
Jesus is the one who gave us this behavior that as often as you gather together in my name to worship me, to study my word, to know me, and to follow me, do this together. Take of my body and eat of it because I gave it to you for the remission, which is the removal of sins. It's the, it's the, it's the mercy seat. It's to convey the idea of your sin has been covered. It has been atoned for. And not only that, we have the, and it's where we get the word forgiveness from, but not only that, God gives us the promise, I have removed it from you fully. Cancer that is in remission is gone. I have given to you my body for the remission of your sins. Break the cycle today as you commune with your God and you remember his body was given for and broken for you to have all of that cut out of you. And only he can do the work, but you have to follow him. You have to put forward, forth the diligence every day. The cup, his blood shed, his death being poured out. Life is in the blood. We're told in Jeremiah in the new covenant, through this, this, this promise that we have through the shedding of his blood, that he is going to give to us a new heart. I need a heart that is not stubborn. I need a heart that is not rebellious. I need a heart that is kind and gentle and steadfast and faithful, filled with joy, filled with hope. This is why we gather to do what we are doing. Every week we have communion at the end as we worship God to give you space to respond to what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. It may be words that came out of my mouth. It may be words out of his word. It may be something and an idea that the Holy Spirit has just placed into your head. You know how you need to respond. You know what you need to stop. You know what you need to start. Believe in him and hope in him and follow him and obey him enjoy and consider it a great pleasure because I'm telling you, I, I've, I've played outside of the Lord. I've played outside of the Lord by, by, you know, in a relationship with the Lord. Life is an empty futility outside of him being in perfect control every day. So church, come on up. Let's worship, grab the elements and that God have his way in you. The song that we sang earlier, let our Jesus change you. Amen.